Thanos are the Avengers. All right, so I'm, I'm going to need a little help from the kids here. So if you're under the age of 40, you can chip in and answer. Uh, if you're a grown-up, you'll have to just watch on. Uh, who can tell me who the big green guy is at the back? The Hulk. What's special about the Hulk? He's big and green and he's strong. So the Hulk is the, the product of a, a scientific experiment gone wrong. He gets angry and he gets strong. He's almost indestructible. What about the guy on your right who has the shield? Who's he? Captain America. And what's special about Captain America? He's super strong and he's got a shield. See, these guys know they're Avengers. It's very good. Uh, He's actually the result of a a scientific experiment gone right. So he's also pretty much indestructible. What about the dude in the middle with uh, the the glowing blue ball in his chest? Any takers on him? Iron Man, Lucy. What's special about Iron Man? That's right, he's got basically a nuclear reactor in his chest that powers this amazing suit and no end of money to make great toys. Um, and uh, he's almost unsquashable. Um, we, oh, we don't have Doctor Strange up there, he's my favourite. He's got a little green infinity stone in a necklace around his neck and he can harness the powers of the universe. Um, what about the lady right over on your right? Anyone know who that is in the black suit? You don't know. Black Widow. Widow. And what's her superpower, Josh? Uh, Yeah, that's right. Actually, she doesn't really have a superpower. She's just Scarlett Johansson. She's just (laughs) pretty and athletic and strong and extremely deadly. Um, And, of course, the feminists would say, well, what do you expect? She's a woman. She doesn't need super abilities to be super. Um... All of these are enhanced individuals. And, and not all of the Avengers, and that's only a few of them, are even, uh, are even human. Thor there with the big hammer is actually a demigod. Um, uh, AI is an artificial intelligence being, a being. So quite the story. So how do you think this battle against Thanos ends up? Well, I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to watch all... 20-plus of the movies, if you want to find out the answer to that. Well, on Good Friday, we too tell a story about the quest to rescue humanity from death, don't we? And it's a very different type of story to the kind of story that human imagination usually dreams up. In fact, uh, the prophet Isaiah described this story uh, along these lines. He came and proclaimed something that he says... No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived. And at the centre of Isaiah's story that we've been looking at, we come to a man. And Isaiah's description of this man is very apt. He says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. 
See, at the center of our story is a man. Jesus, who is fully man, but at the same time, fully God incarnate. God in human flesh, without his divinity being diminished or his humanity being diminished. But in this story, he does not suffer like a God suffers. You know, this is not a story about his beauty or about how invincible he is or unmovable or indestructible like the Avengers, a a person that can't actually be touched by pain or suffering. He is as unlike an Avenger as possible. Not, Not at all the kind of hero that we're inclined to dream up in our imaginations. In fact, he's so unlike our imagination of what a hero should be like that we rejected him and we killed him. So this is not a story about men become like gods, but God become man. And then as a man, betrayed to his enemies through the treachery of one of his closest friends and followers. As a man, abandoned by his disciples and his friends, So alone with his mental anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane while his disciples snooze the evening away, abandoned to his fate when his enemies come to arrest him and his disciples scatter into the night. As a man, stripped of all justice and all rights. So he's tried on the basis of a fictitious charge and and fallacious evidence put forward by those seeking his death because he is a threat to their own little empire of power and influence tried by the Roman procurator and actually found not guilty but executed anyway because it was politically expedient for Pilate to get rid of him. So ridicule, beaten, then led away, stripped naked and crucified and led out of the city, outside the city walls to the place you take rubbish, where you take your refuse to a piece of ground Uh, shamefully and uh, forever defiled by blood and by death. Only a place where you take criminals and the unforgivable to die. And as a man, not afforded a noble or, or heroic death like a superhero, but executed in place of the rebel Barabbas and between two rebels. And in fact, today we would call these people terrorists. And there he's mocked as a king because he was regarded as anything but kingly. And his dishonourable death was meant to signify that he was far from a king. But actually the worst is still to come because as a man, Jesus is now to experience true abandonment by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark's telling of the crucifixion, everything Jesus suffers to this point is is told in in a rather matter-of-fact way. He doesn't embellish the crucifixion. So when it comes to the actual moment of crucifixion, he simply says, and they crucified him. Now, in one sense, Mark doesn't dwell on on the physical tearing of flesh, the wrenching of joints, joints, the the slow suffocation, because his hearers all would have understood exactly what was involved in a crucifixion. 
And nor is he suggesting that Jesus didn't suffer any of the horrors of dying this way. And it's a truly horrible way to die. Because in another sense, Mark's not interested in the physical suffering of Jesus' death. Because the real suffering, the real agony, is not the physical pain. It's what happens at this point in the narrative. In verse 33, it says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now, in the very sophisticated way that Hebrew stories get told, right at this point, the narrative pretty much slows down. It goes into what we would think as slow motion, and then it stops at the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, we come to the real event. Darkness came over the whole land. Now, I used to think that somehow, vaguely and incorrectly, that darkness was somehow God's sign of displeasure at what had been done to Jesus or was just meant to be a a dramatic backdrop. But in fact, the coming of darkness signifies the full weight of God's displeasure, the full weight of his justice. You might recall as we've been reading through Uh, Isaiah's prophecy, we've heard about the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord with salvation and with justice, which is signalled by darkness. Because to Israel, way back at Mount Sinai, God appeared on top of the mountain in a cloud uh, of storm with darkness and fire to signify his presence. And then tells his people that you'll know he's coming again because it will be attended also with storm and darkness. The coming of his presence that means salvation for his faithful people, but justice and destruction for all who defy him. For rebels, the day of the Lord is a day of darkness because for them it is an uncreation day, a day when the sun stops shining, the moon and the stars disappear And the holiness of God as a burning fire comes as peril to those who've set themselves as rebels against his rule. And so Jesus, the Son of God, takes his place, our place, amongst the rebels. And the darkness of the day of the Lord comes upon him. And in the darkness, he cries out, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's worth knowing that in all the Gospels, everywhere where Jesus prays and addresses himself to God, he only ever addresses himself to Father. And when he teaches his disciples to pray, he teaches them exactly the same. You are to address him as Father. And it's striking in Mark's Gospel that there are only two places where Jesus addresses God in prayer. Here at the cross, in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and back in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays, Abba, Father. This is the only occasion in all the Gospels where Jesus addresses God as Abba. Again, Aramaic. It's the word, uh, it's the informal, the intimate word with which you address your father within the confines of the family, not the public name of your father. 
But now from the cross, Jesus does not cry, Father, but God. The intimacy of Father and Son has been rent asunder. This is the real violence of the cross, that God, the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit, choose to set the Son in place of sinful humanity and take upon themselves the consequences of our rebellion, separation, and death. Now, the onlookers who hear this can't, can't grasp this. They hear not Eloi, my God, but Eli, Elijah. And they go, oh, oh, Elijah's coming. They're thinking that there might be some superhuman power show of strength after all. Um, the coming back of Elijah like a superman from heaven. But there is no answer from heaven. Jesus dies alone cut off from humanity and cut off from God. And at this point, a dreadful sign is enacted. The temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. Now, this curtain was in the temple and it separated the innermost sanctum where once upon a time the ark of God resided and the very presence of God was said to dwell from the main part of the temple where the priests would go in and minister. Only the high priest and only once a year would go behind the curtain to minister. This inner sanctuary was the most holy place. And the curtain was there to protect it. It, it was to protect the holiness of God from the, the commonplace, the, the profane, from simply casually coming into God's presence. But it was also there to protect the profane, the ordinary, the commonplace from the holy presence of God, lest in coming to contact with the presence, humans should be consumed. Or to put it in Hebrew terms, God's wrath should break out against them. And so the tearing of the curtain is rich in symbolism. The, the ultimate act of blood sacrifice on the cross makes a new covenant between God and man and makes the old covenant and the temple unnecessary. The, the cross is the removal of the barrier between sinful humanity and a holy God, a way for us to come freely into the presence of God. But also at this particular moment, the tearing of the curtain is also God breaking out in wrath against the profanity of sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' cry is the climax of Mark's narrative of the crucifixion at the ninth hour. And it's a climax rich with meaning, but also opaque with mystery. It's mystery because we lack either the understanding or the imagination to sufficiently enter into the experience that Jesus is undergoing here. I mean, perhaps the closest we'll ever come to his experience is, is a time of uh, serious sickness or, or even impending death. And if you've experienced either of those things, then you know what it is at that time to feel cut off from life going around you. 
to feel that you can neither enter into the joys of the day or the rest of the night, that you are no longer part of, of what's going on in the world. But what does it mean for Jesus to suffer in this way? Not only in his humanity as a man, but in his divinity as God. What does it mean for Jesus, Son of God, beloved of the Father, creator of all things, to suffer this? Well, we really can have no idea. And nor can we plumb to the centre of the mystery of the Trinity here. What happens in the person of God as Father and Son and Spirit enter in upon this alienation of human rebellion where the Son cries out and can no longer say, Father, and the Father determines not to answer to answer simply with darkness and a torn curtain. And it's the mystery of the cross that we can never get to the bottom of. However, the meaning of the cross is rich for us in whose place Jesus is. Because ours is that forsakenness which Jesus has not only borne but overcome. In the story of Israel, God promised never to forsake his chosen people. But then at the same time, he warned that those who forsook his covenant of love, he would forsake. It, it almost seems as if there's a contradiction in God here, that there's some kind of tension, some unresolvable tension even, in the story of Israel and, that, and God's dealings with them. And as we look around the state of the world today and we look at what that tells us about the true nature of human beings, we feel that tension. We know ourselves to be people who are faithless to our very core. We're, we're unwilling to love God and keep covenant with him. That's the whole Israelite story. It, it, it's not that we're simply weak. We are unwilling to engage with God and we are unable to love one another. We have set ourselves as rebels against his kingdom and his order and his rule. And so our very nature now as enemies of God means we cannot have successful dealings with God any more than a piece of dry firewood can have successful dealings with a flame. Death is the inevitable consequence of the human condition. We are stuck. How can God receive us if he will forsake those who forsake him? Well, at the cross, in this moment, God resolves to solve the tension, this contradiction, in himself. Because the dreadful irony of the cross is the very man that through his life proved himself fully faithful to the Father is cut off in our stead. And the beautiful irony of the cross is that we who crucified him, now in him, become the faithful people of God whom God will never forsake. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so the magnificence of the cross is the way in which God emerges triumphant, fully faithful to the promise never to forsake his people and overcoming the very barrier that prevents us from being such a people in the first place. Again, Paul writes, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Well, the Easter story, it's a quest to save humanity from death. And it is not the type of story that we humans usually cook up because it has no beautiful superheroes, no superhuman powers, no glamorous technology, no noble fights with uh, lightsabers, no infinity stone to harness the mysterious energy of the universe, not even a noble stand against death. Instead, God himself becomes man and is crucified. And he doesn't die in the manner of the gods of old, unmoved, untouched, only slightly scraped up, lightly injured. He's not immune to suffering, and he's not safe from mental anguish or the horrors of death. And although he is fully God, Jesus determines not to exercise his royal prerogative Instead, he chooses to identify with us as a terrorist against the kingdom, to be shut out of life, to be rejected and condemned for our sake. However, this morning I've only told you half the story, haven't I? Because the cross is in of itself not the complete story. We haven't reached the end. Mark's narrative then leaves us with the women. Jesus' female followers, who alone of all the disciples, seem to have been anywhere near him at this moment, watching from afar where they mourn. And so too do we over the three days of Easter. But the women here are a marker for what is coming because they will, of course, be the first witnesses of the rest of this tale, of what takes place in three days. But then, of course, that's a story for Easter Sunday morning. Thanks be to God.